0: This is a Harper Guys production. The following will contain adult subject matter and may not be suitable
1: for all audiences. Have you ever heard about any of the victims from the Miami drug war? Welcome to The Gallows. I'm Jake, with me as always, my co host Adam. And we are going to get started as always with this short little PSA. Absolutely. Uh, Visit us at thegallowspodcast.com. From
0: there, you can go to our Facebook and Twitter. Uh, You can also find us everywhere podcasts are found. If you have any questions, comments, or case ideas, please email us at thegallowspod at gmail.com.
1: Fantastic. Thank you. Episode number 47. 47. Here we go. Well, this one could be memorable. We are currently four and one-half hours away from the execution of John Ramirez right now going on tonight in Texas. I I didn't hear Gutierrez. Let me get there. (laughs) So, John Ramirez is going to be executed tonight, Uh, barring anything crazy in the last moments. Everything has gone through all of his appeals. He's actually been able to delay this multiple times at this point in time. He stabbed a convenience store clerk 29 times, ended up stealing $1.25 off of him before robbing the store of some cash. So, John Ramirez has it coming tonight. It uh, is something that has been a hot topic for a long time. He was actually denied the touch of a pastor while he passed, which has been a big question of whether or not that falls under somebody's protection for their religion. So it's something that I think will be interesting to see how it processes going forward. There are other cases where this might become prevalent to where it'll be interesting to see what states think of it, whether or not that's something that they end up ultimately allowing. So now on with the rest of the upcoming slate. Uh, we got a three-week hiatus coming, and then we got Rick Road. That's the guy that murdered two brothers while they were sleeping in a revenge killing. And we've been talking about Oktoberfest, and it's uh, it's cranking up a little bit. Oktoberfest is getting a little bit weird. Uh, with tonight's update, we now have four states going live in October. This is going to be the first time we've had four states in one month having executions since two thousand and three. Pretty gnarly, if you ask me.
0: Wow. and and Jake and I, you know, I know people might listen to this and think that we're like, you know, I don't know, like we we start to drool when we hear this. It's not no. that, it's not with that case. No, uh, the 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 thing is that we we are definitely pro uh, execution when it when it's
1: deserved. When it's deserved, yes, but we're also very harsh critics of the system and how it works and think that there are changes that need to be made. So that said, here is your Oktoberfest lineup. Uh ten five, who's already been on here for a little while. Ernest Johnson, all things point towards Ernie meeting his maker down in Missouri. Let's get a little earnest with this. Let's go. That's right. A little earnest money. Uh ten twelve. We got a new addition. This uh, this is Stephen Barbie. And they, <laughs> they lifted the stay that was on him for uh, for killing his his girlfriend and her son. So he's got that coming pretty quick. One of the schedules is kind of a little bit wonky right now. There is technically a stay for Zane Floyd in Nevada. Now, he killed a family of four. The stay could easily be lifted. This is just a stay that's imposed by one of the circuit court judges to make sure that there wasn't exculpatory evidence that was not permissible in court. So basically dot in the I's, crossing the T's is kind of where this one's at. Most people believe that this one is going to come to conclusion on the 20th. Gotcha. 1021. Another new addition to the group is Willie B Smith. The third Alabama getting in on the action here. That's kidnapping and murder of a 22-year-old woman for the grand total sum of $80. There was no rape, nothing like that, that went on with it, which makes it kind of a weird case. I don't have any defense of the guy. He killed a 22-year-old uh, woman for 80 bucks. It's just, I don't know, man. We, we hear so many stories like
0: this, though. The people, I mean, they must be
1: right for some drug money. Right. And then like a UFC pay-per-view coming down to the last one, 1027 is old Ruben himself. That's, uh, Ruben Gutierrez from Texas. He killed an old woman for drug money. Basically, uh, we actually might, we might make a couple Ruben sandwiches that night on the show to, uh, to commemorate. He's been a long standard of this show. He's been up multiple times. He's been stayed multiple times. He keeps going forward and coming back. I thought that at one point in time he had already been done in and we found out from one of our listeners that he in fact had not to where we decided to get a little bit closer to the case again. And so we're on it right now. Uh, R- well, it, Ruben's, Ruben's lawyers are not going to quit. I'll tell you that they've got another month and a half to go. They're going to try everything they can. Just things aren't looking real strong for him right now. I
0: think Ruben must have had some sort of connections, even though that he was you know killing people for drug money. But I think he had some sort of connections, or, or a rich uncle, or somebody that was paying off the warden, yeah, or, or somebody to not pull the switch on him, yeah, because it's
1: Texas. And right, what he did in Texas, right, that should have been done a while ago. Like I hate to say it, but it's automatic. Like, yeah. there's, there's not a lot of question. Anybody that does what he does in Texas, they are all executed by the state. I, I mean, I remember when I was doing a little bit of research for
0: this, this was actually we, – we were covering Ruben Gutierrez back when we were mentioning a lot of this on the other podcast. Right. On the Harper. Right. And I remember reading, and I remember reading one article saying, Texas doesn't want to kill Ruben Gutierrez. Yeah. And then it was,
1: why? question mark Right. I don't think anybody knows yet. No. It's, it's, a, it's a conspiracy. If he gets
0: stayed again. It's going to be something else. Something's going on. If
1: you pull the, the main event, though, they're going to have to replace him with a co-main or something in there someplace. Maybe we should do uh, a live show on that day. I would consider doing a live show. I mean, one of these days, I would really like to travel to an execution site. Oh, my goodness. I would love to, to put that on there. And we just got to go mobile. We got to take the show mobile for one night and just drive to Missouri. Or Nevada, or Texas, or wherever we want to go. I mean,
0: the big show is Texas. <laughs> yeah, it's and
1: it's going to get crazy down there too. Yeah, I mean for the for the Ruben night, there not going to be there's not going to be a lot of a lot of dilly dally going on down there. There is going to be there is going to be people everywhere. It's going to be pandemonium. <laughs> we'd be we'd
0: be down there, and as soon as they flip the switch, well, I guess it's it's push it's push the cocktail right. Yeah. If it was the switch, then we could we could possibly lose power. But yeah. So have you heard any more about? some of the states coming
1: back with the, the chair versus... There have been no new recent announcements, but it's coming into play all kinds of places. I wouldn't be surprised if over the next 12 months that it, it ended up getting announced in another 10, 12 states before it's all done. And the reason and
0: is, and is because of the cocktail controversy.
1: Basically, yes. Nobody can doubt the ability of the chair, especially some of the super proven chairs that are in some of these states to where if they come back with that, then... There's no more of these lawsuits that keep people on death row for an extra five, six years. The Super Chairs by Uncle Frank. Yes. Lukter. Yes. The Lukter family. The first name in home defense. (laughs) (laughs) Lukter. Love it. Yes. Sorry Sorry, we had a little bit of comedy to the show. I I know that some of you aren't really into that, but for us, this is such a heavy topic all the time. Like, we have to find a little bit of a sense of humor about it. I liken it to to a hilarious mortician. You know what I mean? Like. They got one of the hardest jobs on earth. Somehow, most of those guys are hilarious if you've ever spent any time around them. So That's right. All right, so enough with the hilariousness and the upcoming events. Let's get to tonight's show. Miami in the 1980s is remembered for the cocaine, murder, speedboats, bikini. I mean, there's movies that like Blow and things like that that are like uh, the infamous El Padrino, right? You know? from Columbia sending all of his cocaine up through South Florida. You know, I mean, this is legendary stuff we see now, you know, the money, the boats, Miami vice, all of those kind of things. Well, what gets lost in all of this sometimes I think are the tragic stories that are actually connected with this drug war that they had that really revolved around Miami Dade County. And it's kind of interesting to me to kind of see that there's real people that end up behind the scenes on some of this stuff. So on January 22nd, 1986. Mario Amador and his partner Roberto Alfonso were enjoying a nice evening in their Miami Beach home when at least one visitor stopped by, not exactly sure how many people were there. Around 9 p.m., and then around 11, there was a call from a neighbor to the police that the front door was ajar and that this was kind of a big deal because Mario was actually known really well in the area as being somebody that would double check his doors all the time. If he saw somebody else's door or even just like a screen door was closed, but the main door was open. He was always particular about it. Not an area that was known for high crime at the time, but it was just something that he was always cognizant of. So the police actually arrive and they're stunned to find that both men in their young thirties, they are 31 and 32 at the time are gunned down with multiple gunshots to the head and chest. When they start to process the place, they find no signs of forced entry. There are no prints that aren't related to the two victims. And they really have no kind of idea what could have happened. Who could have committed these murders? There's not one resident that saw anything. And from where their house is, it's estimated that through the other homes that are there, there's probably in the neighborhood of 40 people that probably have a visibility on their house for where they're at. So the idea that nobody saw this is kind of crazy. So the police canvassed the area. Within a week, There's literally no leads. And the interviews basically yielded only one other clue, and that was some of the kind of reluctant neighbors had said that Mario had some ties to the cocaine trade. So that's really the only thing that they had. So they start digging, and while they're working on this process, six days and about 15 miles later, the body of Michael Mallott— was found in a wooded area. He had multiple gunshot wounds to the head and to the back. Now, he was discovered by a farmer that had been in that nearby field just the evening before with some cattle, right? He noticed that there was nothing abnormal in the field that night. He was just out there enjoying a beautiful evening, bringing his cattle in, no big deal, right? He said that he knew from where he had been, there were no tire tracks, no shell casings, nothing like that, that could have been seen by anybody at that point in time. Well, when police get to the scene, they kind of see exactly what's going on. And they see tire tracks for sure. They can tell that he's been shot. And they also notice that the wallet is missing. But his ID is shoved into his right front pocket. I'm not really sure why somebody would do that. If you're going to take somebody's wallet, why don't you take the ID as well? They must have wanted him to identified. That's all I can think of. Right. Now, the other thing that the farmer tells police, which I find to be incredibly interesting, is that his wife actually had been dealing with some insomnia. She's up till 2.30 in the morning. That's when she goes to bed. Well, he's up at four working on the farm. So that leaves only an hour and a half period in which nobody in that household is up. So if you got a whole bunch of shenanigans going on out in the cornfield... How, how does that not get caught? I mean, you're talking that house is only 300 yards from that cornfield. If you, I don't know if you've ever spent any time out in a real country, but if you're 300 yards out in a cornfield and a gun goes off, you're going to hear that. Oh, yeah. Your neighbors a half mile away are probably going to hear that. Oh, for sure. I mean, because it's quiet out there. They don't have all the noise and the hustle and bustle that you get inside a city. So they show up on the scene. The police, they, they're documenting everything. Well, interesting enough, it comes back that – Malat was actually an informant for the FBI, and he was a gunsmith. So now they have one of their informants that's been gunned down. A couple of weeks later, on February the 27th, 1986, which is actually about four weeks after, we have Louis Robledo and his partner Upiano Ledo, which are found with numerous gunshots to the head and torso. They're discovered. The morning afterwards, after they had been deceased, after the 27th, so they were actually found on the 28th, they were actually found by a relative who had stopped to pick Lewis up for a family get-together. The police found no enemies that anybody could name that somebody was actually out trying to get them. They also had struggled to find anybody in connection with it, but they did find some bullets left in the victims. They had found some casings where they... Now had some more to go on, and they also had a new fresh set of wounds that could see if there's any kind of a connection to all of this. So they begin digging, and once again, they find the drug trade. It seems that Lewis was kind of a middle-range drug dealer. He had some people that worked for him, moving stuff, but he wasn't anywhere near the big boys, you know? He was just an average guy, you know, trying to score some of his stuff at a good price, you know make a little bit of side money on it has a has a few people working for him a guy that's got a pretty good flow without having the kind of uh, the kind of power that you don't want to deal with in that CD side of life sure well so they come to find out that he was actually starting to get a little bit larger shipments so then they start to wonder you know you know was this something where like some robbery had been in place you know for something that maybe didn't wasn't prepared for what that situation would bring to the table well what they were struggling with were the deck. The detectives are looking at a low level drug dealer an informant and a mid-level drug dealer. There's nothing immediately other than the cocaine trade that ties them together. And they're not people on the same plane that look like they would be being taken out together. Right. It's not like you have a drug kingpin. That's looking at these guys, you know, right. and they're not going to want that much heat in a short period of time. Anyway, I mean, this all happens in six weeks period of time. Well, in early early into March. The results on the bullets and the bullet casings come back. The gun used to kill, to kill Mario and Roberto was determined to be a twenty-two. The gun used to kill Malat was a 9mm. But the gun that was used to kill Lewis and his partner was a twenty two that matched the ballistics identically on Mario and Roberto. So while they're disappointed that everything doesn't come together right here, they're able to make a connection on four of the murders. So we kind of have an outlier with the informant at this point. So at least now they feel like they're looking for a central group, a central person. You know, when you get murdered, murders that are connected, especially four murders, that's a lot going on. That's a big deal. Yeah. So on April the 22nd of 1986, so you're talking just another couple months later here, Farrah Quintero and Sarah Musa are found murdered in their apartment, also in Miami. Once again, the scene is clean for the most part, except for a few things that kind of stood out to investigators. Both women had been shot at point blank range with Sarah sitting at the kitchen table and Farah being found in the living room. Now Farah actually had a large skull fracture on the right side of her head. This was different than any of the marks that they had found at any of the other crime scenes. And they also recovered some nine millimeter casings that would end up matching Malat. So they also found a credit card that had the name Mario Amador on it. So, Two more bodies wasn't what they were looking for, but now they have all seven murders connected up. Like that's a big thing when you still don't know what or who you're actually looking for. Right. I mean, and this has been what, four months at this point in time. The very next day, on April the 23rd of 1986, Ramon Oliveiro, also known as El Negro, and his girlfriend Daisy Richard were enjoying dinner at an upscale restaurant in Miami. Alvaro was a well-known lieutenant drug dealer, so he wasn't quite the shot caller, but he was definitely a well-known number two to a very large shot caller. He also was known to have direct ties with the Colombian police and some ties that might have them all the way to the top of the Colombian side of the cocaine trade. So El Padrino may or may not have been involved at some point in time here, which seems like he touched everything in Miami back then, but still,
0: oh, yeah. that's, a, that's
1: a pretty good reach. For sure. So the police were alerted that Alvaro's car had been parked in the parking lot the night before and was still there the following m- morning. So they actually re- received four phone calls uh, that there had been a couple of dead bodies that were off of a hiking trail in the woods about 10 to 11 miles away from the restaurant. Once they got to the scene, same pattern that they'd seen from before, multiple shots to the head and torso were found. But there were also a few things that actually helped to break this case open. The marking on Daisy's face, you know, super good looking. She's dating the mob guy. You know what I mean? The, the really the wrong place at the wrong time. Well, they notice the same mark on her face that they found on Ferris's face. The other thing that they find, which is interesting, is where the footprints lead away from these two murders. There's actually blood that follows. So it's like, all right, now we have something that's actually happened to our killer, to where we can kind of maybe take this a little a little further direction and see what had happened. Well, police knew that their killer had been injured, so they put on an APB to the hospitals in Florida, and they're looking for somebody with a twenty two pistol because that's what had been used on both of them.
0: Even though you're not taking the twenty two into the hospital.
1: Exactly. I mean, you don't want to take the twenty two in a hospital, but at some point in time, you're probably going to have to go there, right? Yeah. Don't maybe, get ahead maybe. of me. Don't get ahead of me. <laughs> the next day... On April the 24th, around 10 p.m., the detectives at the Miami-Dade field office, uh, unit of the FBI, they get kind of a strange phone call. A doctor at a hospital in New York City called and asked if they had an officer who had been shot recently. Clearly, they had not, but now they had some questions. You know, like, why are you asking this? What's going on? Well, the doctor, they only refer to this guy as Dr. Ed. I am not sure why. Anything I can find, that's all you see is they refer to this guy as Dr. Ed. I don't know if for some reason they wanted to keep his name out of things. Interesting to say the least. So Dr. Ed was actually a medic in Vietnam War, and he became an ER doctor after he returned, which I thought was pretty admirable. Sure. But he's also a no BS kind of guy. When he sees something kind of weird or off kilter, he's somebody that's going to raise... Raise a hand. Well, he called the office and said that a patient had come in and said that he had a gunshot wound to his foot, and when they were talking about how it had happened, he said that he was out alligator hunting in Florida. Well, what's weird about that, and Dr. Ed knew this, is that the hunting season for alligators goes from August to November. So, what was he doing hunting alligators in April?
0: He probably wasn't. Right. I have to guess.
1: So, he... But he wanted to check. He didn't want to just call the New York police and start a big storm. So he called down to the Miami Dade office to see if anything had happened, if they were looking for anybody. And they were like, hmm, that's interesting. Well, within 30 minutes, they have agents from the New York field office there that are dispatched to the hospital to talk to this mystery guy. When they arrived, they met a tall, imposing man with a bullet hole in his left foot. He was detained for questioning, and he was more than happy to share his story. You see, Manny Pardo was actually kind of an unusual case all the way around. And he was actually one of part of the statistics when you see how much police were involved in some of the stuff that went down in Florida back in the 80s. 6'2", 170 pounds, really known as an athletic guy, started his career in the late 70s as a highway patrolman in Florida. After a couple of years, he was under investigation for fraudulently turning in over 100 speeding tickets. So basically he just sat there, pulled people's license numbers, and instead of actually pulling them over, he just turned them in to be paid. So these people would have warrants outstanding for them because he was too lazy to actually do his job. Well, that's nice, isn't it? So after two years, he gets let go, and then he ends up down in Cuba testifying and lying about an assault case that another officer had been involved in. So they find out about this and he's all the way gone at this time. So he was in Miami Dade at that point in time, working as just a beat officer. So then he moves up a little further up the coast to a town called Sweetwater and just a regular beat officer, a little small area. And he gets known as just a really, really great guy. He was actually revered in the local newspapers for having saved a choking baby at one point in time. And then he also saved three dogs from a fire. So he was kind of a, Cop that never had to kind of buy his own drinks, you know, he learned to to love being this hero cop. Like it was something that, that he just really took to. That this is who he was and kind of his personality. So as time went on, though, these heroic acts kind of become more and more into the rearview mirror. I mean, like you're just not the big deal that you were at one point in time, you know, to where it's time to to kind of get things cranked up again. So he thought, you know, what better for me than to go out and make a great big narcotics bust? You know, narcotics are the big problem right now. That's what I need to do. I need to go get that glory back, you know? So he starts getting close to drug dealers, starts dealing with some informants. I mean, things he should not be doing as a beat police officer. You know, I mean, you find informants, stuff like that, you're supposed to hand that kind of stuff off to detectives that are working active cases. Like, this is not the job of a beat police officer. Like, no offense, I love beat police officers. you know, they're part of the heart and soul of our country, but there's things that you just should not be doing. Amen. Right? So... He gets to the point where he's like, you know, I want to be part of the FBI. So he applies and they're like, no, this is never going to end up happening. So he decides that it's his job. He's been called by God to start taking on these bad guys. So he talked about his partner, Ronaldo Garcia, and how he uh, assisted him in the murders. But it was all for a good cause. You see, Rolando had been abused by his stepfather, who was a drug dealer. And he wanted to get back at the drug dealer community as well. And he had no better way to do it than as a vigilante because of how slow our government was progressing with this war on drugs. So you got two guys that have just had enough of the drug trade and they just want to start murking people to to make the country a better place to live. The two of them set up the murders together and actually felt like society owed them a debt. He would actually say that on the stand. Well, based on the facts found by police, this uh, this tough-on-crime cop was actually nothing more than a serial killer that was driven by his lust for drugs and money. Here's a real account of what happened to the nine victims of Manny and Rolando. I'll try to keep this as short as we can possible, but I think that the details are important to what actually happened to these people, for for being people that, that really didn't deserve any of this. So to go back to the beginning of their crime spree that lasted a couple of months, uh, the 1986 January, the first one was... Uh, Manuel and his co-defendant, Rolando, they went to the residence of Mario and Mario was actually the well-known small-time drug dealer, right? And they want to get a couple kilo, a couple kilos from him and they were actually working for another guy named Ramon Alvero, who had given them money to go get these couple of keys from this guy. Well, they decided, you know, let's keep the money and the drugs, you know, so let's just, uh, let's go murk this guy. So that's what they did. They ended up murdering both of them. And basically a drug deal gone wrong. Um, it, it's kind of sad when you think that people die for two kilos of coke. I mean, that's really nothing in this world anymore. And it's kind of, kind of ridiculous w- when you think about it. Uh, the reason that nobody heard anything was because he actually had two custom silencers made. Do you want to take any guess what caliber of guns these two silencers were made for? A twenty-two. And?
0: A nine millimeter.
1: That's right. A twenty two. You know when, when you
0: first started this uh, story and you said no one heard it from a football field, I first thought silencer, but a lot of those those are kind of not all that I should say they're they're more rare than
1: Yes. Especially back in nineteen eighty six. Right. Well, that leads us to six days later. So Manny and Garcia go to see Michael Mullot, the gunsmith who had actually made the two silencers at that time for him. And Pardo actually found out through his friends, because he had talked about the fact that he had had these silencers made, that this guy was an informant and now he was scared. Because he already had a couple murders behind him, which nobody really knew about at that point in time. But he's afraid that this guy is going to end up squealing at some point in time about what's going on. So that's why they eliminate him. I was like, wow. That's why you killed the informant was because he did what you asked him to? I mean, how jacked is that? February 27th, 1986, that was the five weeks after the fact, right? This is when they go down to the to see uh, Ramon Alvero, and they go down to the apartment. What's kind of crazy about this one is it's the same type thing. It's over drugs, but this guy's a little bit next level. Well, this is for five keys, so they're upping the amount a little bit here. Now they have to turn some of these drugs over to their boss, but they're also keeping all of the cash that goes with this. Thousands and thousands of dollars. I don't know what I don't know how much 5 kilos cost. In 1986, I'm sure it wasn't cheap, to say the least. No, for sure. Excuse me. This is the one that I can't get past. It's been a couple of months now, and it takes us to when they went to and they murdered Farah and Sarah, right? So what had happened was they found that Farah had the credit card of one of the victims already Do you remember that from earlier in the show yeah what they actually were doing was manny was trying to get them to go buy vcrs with this credit card that way they could turn around and sell them well he promised that he would give each of them fifty dollars if they each went and bought two vcrs at different stores with these credit cards because back then a vcr was like 500 bucks Right? So that's a couple grand. If he gets them, and can sell them. Even if he sells them at three hundred bucks, that's twelve hundred bucks. Minus a hundred, he's net profit eleven hundred dollars for not doing anything. Right. Right? Well, they get denied. And it's actually the second time they stop that the clerk actually takes the card and won't give it back. They said if you want to have him come in here and get his card back, you can do that. Well, they don't know it, but that guy's dead. So he ain't coming back in to get his card. So they start bitching about wanting their fifty dollars. And if you ain't gonna give me my fifty dollars, give me some drugs. $50 finally got sick of the entire thing and from fair complaining and complaining and complaining. So that's when they decided they were going to murder them. Well, what actually happened was, I don't know if you remember me saying that she had blunt force trauma to the head. Farrah did the gun actually jammed that 22. So to unjam it, instead of like trying to recock it back, he bashed her in the side of the head with it to get it unjammed. And then he shot her three more times. This is per his own testimony. This isn't me projecting or what the police think happened. This is per his testimony. Well, so shooter in the head, he unjam the, it.
0: He figured the only way to unjam it. Why waste a good whack?
1: I mean, I guess what an idiot. It's insane. And then it, it goes to the following one, right? To where the last one that we end up with in all this is when they go after their boss, they're tired of giving their boss money, fighting back. They're trying to actually start making their own connections. They would find out later to get, to go after Ramon Alvero. I mentioned it earlier, literally his girlfriend was nothing but in the wrong place at the wrong time. Daisy did nothing wrong in any of this. They take him out to where they murdered him, down off the hiking trail. Guess what happens after he shoots Daisy the first time?
0: The gun jams.
1: It jams. Well, this time when he hits her in the head with it, where do you think that shot goes? Into his foot. Into his foot. See? You see how this all... You've been part of too many of these shows. You're starting to piece it all together now. That's right. So that is how that all ends up happening. After he shoots himself in the foot, he pulls himself together and actually shoots her three more times. So Manny ends up going to trial. He maintained that he did not kill any of the women in this group, that he is innocent of that, but he did—he openly admits that he killed all six men. He said, I would never hurt a woman for anything. I've never hurt, hurt any of these women. This is crazy that you would try to pin this on me. This is absolutely ridiculous. Well, the evidence kind of shows a little bit otherwise. Both of the guns were Manny's. Uh, both of the shots were fired by the right hand in seven of the nine murders, including all three of the women. Malat and Alvero were the only two that could not be determined which hand was used to murder them with. So all three women were killed by somebody that's right-handed. Manny is right-handed. Garcia is not right-handed. He's left-handed. So it's pretty easy math for anybody to figure out there. So Manny tried to use the insanity plea and his lawyers, like they were blasting this on TV, I mean, eating this up as much as they could, trying to put it out there. Well, the results of the state uh, mental acuity test actually came back as inconclusive. The results would later be reviewed again by the Florida State Crime Lab, and they would come back and say that his traits were actually consistent with a sociopath But at the time they didn't actually have a test for that to where it was a developmental thing to where if they had had it that way, they would have disclosed in court that he was actually a sociopath. I found that to be really interesting that this case is 1986. And that was before sociopaths were well known for what they are in society now. So all in all, Manny's found guilty of all nine murders and he's given a death sentence for each. My favorite way to do things is why not give somebody one death sentence when you can give them nine? Well, Garcia might be the reason why, honestly. As I say, just to be sure. Well, that's exactly right. So Garcia was only 23 at the time that he was an accomplice in all of these murders. They can only prove that he was even present for five of them. Okay? They also found that he had a tested IQ of an 86. Now, 180 is like the mental capacity line. If you're below an 80 you were considered to have some kind of mental of mental impairment, right? Well, 86 ain't far off, but 100's normal. So, like, that just gives you an idea of where the scale is. There's different ways to be 86, okay? So that doesn't get you completely off the hook for anything. So they said that they would take it into consideration. So he's found guilty of all five murders and given death sentences for, for all five. Well, it's later determined by the appeals courts that three of the five verdicts had to be thrown out due to the judge ruling that one of the detectives working the case had not planted evidence when it was later proven that he had planted evidence in other cases and he actually murdered his girlfriend himself in 1993 and would end up going to prison. So because this guy murdered three people and cheated in another case, the facts didn't really matter here. So three of the five get overturned immediately. Now, today, Garcia is still fighting these. He's still under appeals right now because all of this happened in 02 to get to where basically the stuff was thrown out to where it restarted the entire process on these two. He is still on the hook for death sentences for Malat and Garcia because basically they cannot rule him out of those two murders. So he's in appeals. There's been an offer of life without parole, but the defense turned it down. That tells me that the prosecution thinks that there might be something that is a little bit amiss and they're just trying to get this thing done, but they will not concede to any kind of a parole date. The prosecutor won't, so we continue to go through the appeals process. Clearly, Manny never gets this offer from the state. The execution date is December the 11th, 2012. His final meal would be rice, red beans, roasted pork chunks, plantains, avocado, tomatoes, and olive oil. For dessert, he ate pumpkin pie and drank eggnog with a glass of Cuban coffee to finish off. Now I thought that this was interesting under department of corrections rules in Florida at the time, the meals ingredients must have a cost of $40 or less at any local grocery store and must be prepared by a chef in the prison's kitchen. So I think that's the best one yet. You know, I'm still, I'll give you a last meal. You know what I mean? You're on your way out. I'll make you something a little special. We ain't going crazy though. Forty bucks. I mean,
0: yeah, no, I like that.
1: I think that's a happy medium to the smorgasbords and also the daily prison fare. I mean, daily prison fare is probably the winner, but I'm just saying if you're going to give a last meal, this might be the way to do it, right? Yeah. At least, at least, don't you're break not the getting bank.
0: Some super chef. You're not getting five gallons of ice cream. Exactly. I mean, that would
1: be impressive, though. I mean, some of the stuff these guys one eat, of, though, I don't know how of they those do
0: guys it. had like two or three gallons. I of- think it was two.
1: So just past 7 p.m., the U.S. Supreme Court had actually denied his final appeals, and the seven people from his family that were there to see him were actually ushered out from being with him as they decided it was time to get him prepped up for his expiration here. They were actually ushered into a small room facing the death chamber, and they were actually seated right with the family members of all of the victims. Uh, One of the most crowded uh, execution rooms you'll ever he- ever see according to most of the reports there were there were standing room only literally which is not very common for an execution it's usually pretty hard to get in but because of the number of victims that were involved here and every every victim had family members that showed up for this which I thought was impressive too yeah so sometimes you don't get that to where not to, there's always some family that doesn't want to deal with it and that's their right but I thought that was interesting
0: yeah I mean you can see both sides of that but I mean I think if you were a very convicted family member you'd want to See that go down.
1: Yeah. Uh, See it finished. I I agree completely. So once they got him strapped in without incident and wasn't giving anybody any problems, uh, Tim Cannon, who was the corrections officer in charge of the execution, announced that the final procedure was about to be underway. Without incident, they began to push the combination of drugs into Pardo's body through a tube in his arm. He was gaunt at this page, bald and pale. He mumbled out his last words, and they were unaudible to the gallery through the speaker system. Then he yawned, and his eyes started darting briefly across the room and then fixated on Cannon. He drew a couple deep breaths and then fell into a deep sleep. His mouth fell open for the next fifteen minutes, and he slowly stopped breathing until everything was done. Finally, a doctor brushed aside the brown curtain and he shined the flashlight into the killer's eyes. Checked his chest with the stethoscope, looked at Cannon and nodded, and they pronounced Pardo dead. Garcia is still appealing to this day, and he has said that if they will grant him any kind of a parole hearing, that he will give all of the details to the authorities. So that is the execution of our friend Manny. So a couple questions. I don't want to sound sick in asking this, but if you are a well-connected drug dealer like El Negro, are you going to take a chance that one of your guys is going to clip you? I mean, I would think that you would have other guys around all the time. You know, you'd have an ear to the grindstone about what they're doing, especially when one of your guys is the cop. You know what I mean? Like, that's the part that I struggle with. Yeah, it seems like he didn't know what the hell was going on. Right. I mean, this guy's a cop turned serial killer. This isn't an everyday occurrence, you know? I mean, a, to- a cop turned drug dealer turned serial killer. Like, it's pretty fucking far fall from grace if you ask me. I don't
0: know. When you're in, like, the the drug business or the mafia business, are you really a serial killer? Or are you just, like, the axe man? You think? I mean, I guess it's probably the same thing. I mean, I don't know. It, I think there's different motivations
1: for killers. You know, for
0: him, it's drugs and money. I mean, I think, like, serial killers to me is something that you, you kill because it's, like, compulsive nature. But, uh...
1: But all serial killers get something out of it. Yeah. That's just my opinion. I mean, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not saying that from a psychological point of view. Yeah. I'm just saying from an opinion point of view. So I just was, was surprised that he got caught. You know what I mean? Like that he didn't have more protection for himself around the whole thing. Yeah. That is weird. Do you think that when you look at the story as a whole, that on some level, Farah and Sarah are definitely outliers? Yeah, I think so. There was nothing to gain by killing them. No. A hundred bucks.
0: Yeah, I don't even know why they would
1: Are you just that bent off on killing at that point in time? That that's your answer to make every problem going away and you haven't got caught yet? Like I don't know. I'm trying to make sense of this of this because it's two people that you had some kind of a friendship with between you and your partner. You know what I mean? You promised them each fifty bucks, that's a hundred dollars. Like there's no heat in the world that's worth that. You know what I mean? For sure.
0: Yeah, I don't know. That's that's a weird one.
1: I I just was confused on that. The only thing that I that I was curious about is when you look at the fact that they killed Malat after Malat made the two silencers for Manny. If you knew he was an informant, why would you touch the informant? I mean,
0: did could could none of these people known anything about each other?
1: I mean, they're right. That's what I'm saying. I mean, I, I would think that at some point in time, like you'd be like, look, you already made them for me. Now you're going to keep your mouth shut. If you don't keep your mouth shut, I'm going to murder you. You know what I mean? Like,
0: yeah, but do you trust the informant? I mean, I don't
1: So you're in favor of clipping him? No, I mean. I mean, I'm not saying just trying to say in favor. I'm just talking about from that perspective. It, it, does, it
0: doesn't make any sense. If you knew he was an informant in the first place, why would you ask for the silencers? Well, right. I don't think
1: he knew at the time that he was an informant.
0: So at some point from the request to when they were delivered, he found out. And he's like, oh, well, you got to go.
1: Yeah. Which, I, which to me is crazy, though. I don't think you killed that guy. Yeah, I don't know why you would. I mean, you're talking about... I mean, the
0: only reason he he can just tell the authorities that, yeah, I sold some silencers.
1: Right. Because I'm not trying to downplay this, and this is not a shot being taken any kind of law officers in Florida. But during this time period, there were so many murders and stuff going on. I'm sure if you go back and look, there's, there's a ton of cold cases from that era. You know, people that ultimately got fed to alligators. You know, that kind of stuff actually went on to where I'm sure if they had murders like these that got connected to the cocaine trade to where they were like, look, we don't have any solid leads going on right now. We don't have evidence that, connect, that it's connected to anything else next to where if they just would have left well enough alone a couple times or done things a little bit different. I don't think that they would have been caught. I mean, it's very possible unless they just kept going. Right. I mean, had he not shot himself in the foot and got caught by a Vietnam veteran, he had already made it back to New York City from Florida at that point in time. Right. I mean, that's crazy. You know, you killed nine people in Florida, then you made it back to New York City. I mean, you talk about a place that you can actually disappear. It's crazy.
0: That, that's for sure.
1: So, so, and then obviously the last question of the night is, was justice served in this case? I mean, to Manny, yes. Right. I think Garcia's got his coming one way or another. Even if you get to seven murders and you're involved... You know what I mean? He never blew the whistle. He never stopped anything. This is months later. Uh, He needs to get his comeuppance, too. Well,
0: I mean, we've had other cases where somebody was just in the car. Yeah. And they're looking at
1: a death sentence. Yeah. Right. I mean, maybe it's state by state. Yeah. Well, I hope that they do the right thing and, and get this guy taken care of at some point as well. As always, is evident in this case, like so many of them, is please take your mental health incredibly serious. If you are struggling and you just need somebody to talk to, please pick up the phone and call 1-800-662-4357. That is the National Mental Health Awareness Hotline. Somebody on the other end end will be there to help you out. Absolutely. So if you're
0: uh, having bad thoughts about hurting yourself or someone else or just can't kick that substance abuse habit, call the number.
1: Thanks so much for joining us. We'll talk again real soon.
0: Stay safe.